as has already been mentioned in both the announcements and even in the prayer, the thanksgiving that fills our hearts as we have been able to assemble on this first day of the week. As I stand before the audience and see not only the membership, but the host of visitors have come our way, we are so very thankful and we hope and trust that our worship service will be encouraging and edifying and that it will truly be well for each of us to be able to say it's been good for us to be able to be here. As we open the Word of God from time to time and are challenged by the things that we find in it, it truly is a monumental thing to appreciate the way that the Word of God will mold and shape us to the extent that we can serve Him even in matters of worship in ways that truly exalt and glorify Him in the way that He intends it to do. As you can see on the wall to my left, the lesson today is entitled, Worship a Mental Matter. And I would invite you for the next few moments this morning to reflect with me upon some of the features in the Word of God that describes for us worship, the things involved in it, the way in which those things are to be done, and the obligation that rests upon your shoulders and mine to carry them out in the way that God has detailed. Some introductory thoughts perhaps that point us in that direction would be this. There's no question that to those that are even moderately aware of the teaching of the Bible, worship is an extremely important matter. As you can see, that word alone is found 198 times in the sacred text, of the King James translation at least. You'll notice it spans from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, the first book to the last one. Worship is a key part and has been a central feature in all three regimes of humanity under the patriarchal era, under the Mosaic era, and now under the Christian dispensation. Worship has always been vital. Our interest this morning is to perhaps reflect a little bit of power and majesty upon what the New Testament says about that very means of worship. I think it wise to say as we begin that that some of these thoughts are certainly in order. We each are aware of what sometimes can be seen in terms of the worship that's offered by the things we see on television, by the descriptions that we find in various places, we understand that quite often worship seems far different than what the Scriptures portray it to be. Look at some of these thoughts with me if you would. Worship is a vital, critical part to the lifeblood of the church and certainly to the lifeblood of an individual Christian. An individual who absents him or herself from worship portrays severe problems spiritually. That person indicates there's somewhere else that he or she would rather be when they could be at worship. And given that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, that indicates that there's a heart problem. There's a problem in that I'm elevating something above and beyond what the Bible would have me to do. I would prefer to be somewhere else. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 4 verse 10, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Reminding us again and again that our worship is solely and exclusively to be directed toward the God of heaven. We aren't to worship entertainment, recreation, personal needs, personal preferences. Those are not God. And yet as we reflect on that last chapter in the Bible, in Revelation 22 verses 8 and 9, it was on that occasion that John was even reminded, worship God. Not even angels, not even other heavenly beings are to be worshipped, only God. Today as you think about 
the nature of various assemblies of people all across this world who have met. Some have worshipped. Some are currently worshipping. Some are yet to worship later this day. But might we ask, is the pattern of worship we find exemplified equal to the pattern we find revealed in the sacred text? May I say again, proper worship is the lifeblood of a church. And it's the lifeblood of an individual Christian. If a church doesn't worship properly, how are we to conclude that anything else is proper? How about their destination, their hope? Are they going to be able to enjoy the marvelous climbs forevermore? If they haven't obeyed the Lord in that regard here, what about the hope that they perhaps will not even have of heaven? What about the other matters concerning worship? As I mentioned earlier, the lifeblood of an individual Christian, certainly it is necessary to be present at worship, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As often as we have thought about that passage in Hebrews 10.25, telling us about the need to consider it important to be present, this morning for the remainder of our lesson, Operating on the presumption that we're present, what should we do when we're there? And how must it be done? Has God said anything? If He has, may we suggest it's important for us to appreciate all that God has said about worship. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, the inspired writer said, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God." and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Question then, what's involved in your worship and mind being from a perfect heart and thus considered the exalting, glorified matter that it is supposed to be? For the remainder of this lesson... I would invite you to look with me at some of the matters that we find about the nature of worship. We've just discussed briefly about our participation in it. Jesus said in that lesson text, Brother Colonel read for us a moment ago, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We find two portions, two descriptives as it relates to worship. On the one hand, it must be done in truth. You'll notice on the slide that Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. We thus learn that to worship in truth would be thus to worship, doing those acts, involving ourselves in participation in those acts which God has authorized. We mustn't fall short of them, nor must we go beyond them. You'll notice that those acts have been exhaustively given in some of the verses I've listed on that slide. What are you and I to do in worship? Are we allowed to make that decision ourselves? There are those in our land who perhaps this very morning are passing around a box of snakes and using that as a part of worship. Are they authorized to do this? There are others in our land who will sway and do various things to the beat of a drum. Are they authorized in doing this? There are others who may be turning cartwheels down the aisle, calling it an expression of their heartfelt worship to God. Are they authorized in doing this? Our desire is simply to allow God to speak. And as we do that, you'll notice He has authorized us to sing. 
to employ our voices in the lovely character of the harmony of what's expressed. In Ephesians 5, verse number 19, the sacred writer pointed out to us, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. But beyond that, we notice that other things besides singing are authorized, namely, praying. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, we are reminded that even lifting up holy hands, men are to lead those prayers. And even today, as we have already engaged in prayer, what a comfort to the soul and what an enjoyment to place the burdens and cares of our life on the shoulders of the one who can not only carry it, but can even solve those problems. Beyond that, you'll notice in addition to singing and praying, there's preaching. The opportunity to hear an exposition of the Word of God. In Acts 20 verse 7, as they gathered on that occasion, Paul preached to them until midnight. And we find full scriptural authorization for that. It is, in fact, an encouraging matter to hear the teaching and those things that challenge us to live more holily, righteously, and godly. Beyond that, a contribution. Highlighted in 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 2, where on the first day of the week we're commanded to lay by in store as God hath prospered us, that there be no gatherings when I come. At that point, we have but one remaining one, the Lord's Supper. The rightful observance and participation of it, as spoken of not only in Acts 20, verse 7, but in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 25, in each of these instances, we find then that God has detailed what we're to do. Now might we ask, how are each of them to be done? Is it possible that we could do those five things that God has revealed, but do them improperly, do them in such a way that nonetheless they still lack the integrity, the honor, and the description that the God of heaven has revealed in them? Certainly, as we begin to look at those things in order, might we begin here? Let's revisit for a moment the matter of singing. We have just lifted our voices together in song earlier today, and if it be the will of God, we'll continue to do that further in the service. As we noted earlier from Ephesians 5, singing is an important part of the worship. Let's notice another passage that goes with it. Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We each thus are commanded to sing with grace in our heart to the Lord. As we lift our voices thus together in song, you'll appreciate that there is an aspect of it which teaches and admonishes. Our songs must not be lifeless and dead because they teach each other. We are thus exhorting one another in that way. Perhaps one other thought about that, though, that is the central piece and thought for our lesson is this. You can see, so interestingly, Jesus already has said that our worship must be done in spirit and in truth. And we've cast the spotlight so far on worship and truth, meaning that we certainly must do those things that the God of heaven has revealed. But might I ask we think about the second part. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Applied to this discussion, what does it mean to sing in spirit? I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 
And let's allow the Apostle Paul perhaps to shed a little bit of additional light on singing in spirit. This is a passage that is likely rather familiar to us, but to hear it in the context of this point and to listen to it in light of this question is very revealing. I would invite you to read with me beginning in verse 14. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. In the context of that location, Paul was discussing the employment of spiritual gifts, which included speaking in tongues, which included interpretation, which included a number of other things that he listed in chapter 12. But we find as he arrived at this point of practical application of these gifts, he said, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit may be praying. But you'll notice my understanding is unfruitful. Others are not benefited by such. They are not able to say amen at the conclusion of the prayer, for they haven't understood what I said. But then he makes a rather powerful application to singing. He says, I will sing with the Spirit also. Verse number 15, I will sing with the understanding. The Greek word that's there present for understanding is mind. I will in fact sing with the mind. We find then that the God of heaven reminds us that as we sing, we need to be mentally engaged in what we're singing. Are those words my thoughts? Or am I daydreaming during the course of the singing? My mind, in fact, wandering elsewhere while my lips go through the motion if I sing at all. If so, how am I fulfilling this passage in which I'm supposed to sing with the understanding? You'll notice then that even our singing... As we lift up our voices together, our mind is to be engaged. Am I following these words? When we sing some of these lovely songs, there is no better friend than Jesus. Do I mean that? When I sing these songs such as, Buried with Christ, my blessed Redeemer, do I mean that? I should. It's no wonder then that our thoughts must be engaged in that singing or else we aren't honoring God as we ought to and we aren't exhorting each other as we should. Perhaps one final thought you'll see. The question then, where is my mind during the song service and where is yours? Is it where it should be or is it somewhere else? Our singing then ought to again be an application of the loving and gracious response of a heart filled with thanksgiving to the God of heaven and our singing should just be an exposition of it. Singing with the Spirit and with the understanding. But perhaps what about praying? You'll notice near the bottom of this slide, we well understand that prayer is a means whereby we have the remarkable honor and privilege of addressing the greatest one of all, namely the God of all. And in so doing, to express our heartfelt thanks to Him, but also to make petitions of Him, to pray on behalf of those that are sick, or to pray on behalf of the success of a gospel effort. Might we ask in terms of all of that, what else does the Holy Scripture say about it? As you can see near the bottom of that slide, it's the very passage in which we just read. Think with me again about what Paul affirmed in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 and 15. 
He said that even if one were to pray in an unknown tongue in that first century, it's true the Spirit might be involved, but the understanding was unfruitful. The prayer was not to the extent that it could have been. It's then in verse 15, he said, what is it then? In essence, what approach should we take? How should I consider this? He said, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. There's that same Greek word, mind. When the prayer was led earlier today, were you and I mentally engaged? Were we following the person leading it in prayer? Were we thinking along with him? Or again, where's our mind elsewhere? Thinking about what we're going to have for lunch, thinking about some event this afternoon, thinking about the workplace tomorrow, hoping it's going to rain perhaps sometime this week. If that was the case, may we in earnestness strive to pray with the Spirit and with the understanding, letting our mind be attuned to the message uttered in that prayer and appreciative that it needs to be our prayer as well. A little bit later in this passage, verse 16 Paul closes that by, in essence, saying this, Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen? When that prayer was uttered, were you and I in position because we listened with care and because we listened with attention that at least mentally when it was over, we too could say, Amen? So be it, God. Let it be so, Lord. That prayer is also mine. Worship is a mental thing, isn't it? Paul here has said that both with prayer and with singing, we need to do so with the mind, engaged in the matter taking place at hand. No wonder worship is thus so meaningful. It is not merely a time to come and consume a couple of hours out of a Sunday. It's not simply something to consume three or four hours out of a week. It must mean more to us than that. Otherwise, we are not engaged in it the way that we should be. We have three more parts of worship to discuss, and some continuing thoughts about prayer would lead us to make those questions. We asked the question earlier, where is my mind while we're singing? And in light of it, we may now ask a similar one, where has our mind been while praying? During the course of a typical worship service here at Pippin, we utter around six or seven prayers. Some of them are around the Lord's table, opening prayer, closing prayer, centralized prayer. Have we been engaged in them? Do we mean them? Perhaps if not, we should appreciate that we need to work harder and we need to more be more involved and we need to strive with greater attention to appreciate what that prayer really is. We are speaking to God the greatest one of all. We aren't addressing some man. We aren't addressing some person. He is the one we're addressing. Certainly as great and as awesome and as mighty as He is, He is deserving of our utmost attention and care. What about preaching? We understand that some of those great worthies of the New Testament, such as Paul and Peter and James and others, they were captivating as they presented the wonderful Word of God. On that day of Pentecost, verse 36, as Peter concluded that lesson, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. This preaching was prompting, it was provocative, and it was powerful. 
just as surely as its potency was perceived at least by about 3,000 that day, we could well see that they were prompted to action. Men and brethren, what shall we do? When the Word of God is preached, sinners ought to squirm. They ought to be reminded of the very fact that their life is derelict in terms of the duties of God and that eternity is hanging in the balance. No wonder then that when the Word of God is proclaimed, we need to have an attentive ear. For God meant for His Word to be understood. He didn't give it as some lifeless matter. Early in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said that there are some things that are lifeless, like the instruments of an orchestra. Those things do not have life-giving sound. But we understand the Word of God is ever fraught with power and meaning. In Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Didn't Jesus say in John 6 verse 63 that it is the very Word of God that quickens us for the Word of God, that is spirit and that is life. As we give some thought then to the concept of preaching and the notion of the message that's delivered, certainly you have every right to expect that any man that would stand in this pulpit should be preaching the truth and if he isn't, he needs to be called on it at once. Be it the elders, perhaps, as they would call that man in question, so that that error does not infiltrate and leave this building. But presupposing that the truth is proclaimed, we should have an interest in hearing it. And we should have an interest in learning more about it. And an interest in making application of that matter to our life. And an interest, of course, in seeing that in the lives of others so that they too can enjoy the message of salvation. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 2, that prophet in the days of the long old, God told him, write the vision and make it plain so that those who read it may run. Habakkuk, you make the message so plain as you preach it that those who hear it can't help but jump to action because they understand the urgency of it. Thus, were they to understand what God said? Absolutely. In Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, they too were reminded, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. They too were to understand. Perhaps it is in light of that that some of these comments are in order. When the Word of God is lifted so highly in verses like those we've just considered, as well as some additional ones, such as Psalm 1, verse number 2. That blessed man of God, it says, he delights in the law of God, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Do you and I find delight in those opportunities of service when we could come together and open this book? To open the Bible that's resting in your lap and to in fact be challenged and profoundly so by lessons found in it? That should be one of the highlights of the week. And yet... We notice that again, our mind is to be a part of it. The sermon is not a time to be daydreaming. It's not a time to be thinking about the ball game tonight or for going fishing next Saturday. It's not a time to be thinking about supper tonight. It's not a time to be thinking about the problems at work tomorrow. They will come soon enough. 
It's a time when we should desire to, in fact, focus for a little while upon the Word of God and to let it enrich our spirit, to touch our life, and move us in the direction of greater maturity and godliness. As you can think about some of those questions at the bottom of that slide, I'm reminded of that statement that Jesus made in Luke 8, verse 18. Take heed how ye hear. I suppose that during lessons we each are hearing, but how are we hearing? Are we listening with care? Are we listening in such a way that if that particular subject touches me and needs to cause change in my life, am I listening so that I'll change? Or am I too quick to say, well, he sure got somebody else today. That was a good lesson for brother so-and-so today. God doesn't leave any of us exempt from the powerful messages of His Word. I need it. We all do. And in so doing, these sermons and the lessons that are delivered and brought, hopefully, can be encouraging and helpful to each and every one of us. It's intended that they be so. God's Word expects it so. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, First Peter 4, verse 11. And so the question, during the singing, during the prayer, during the message, where is my mind and yours? Is it attuned to the frequency of God? I'm reminded of those famous words of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, 14. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith, that will I speak. If your heart and mind is attuned to that kind of thinking, we will be greatly encouraged and greatly interested in hearing the precious message that can save the souls of sin-sick men. What about the contribution? We have looked so far and noticed that mental engagement is involved in all of these things. Let us come to the contribution for a moment. In that contribution, we have the honor. We have the privilege of being a part of carrying out the work of God on this earth. Works of benevolence that we're able to support, works of edification, works of evangelism, and all of them are vital and all of them are needful. And yet you and I in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 7 through 9 are called the fellow workers, fellow laborers with God. Surely as we're able to contribute, and those funds are used in the way that God would have it so, that great good can be accomplished. It is, though, in that regard, I would invite us to consider, what about that contribution? Should we be mentally engaged in that as well? Should it be something that occupies some consideration, some pondering and some reflection? In 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 2, the statement is there made that upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. We notice that we're to give in like manner to the way in which God has prospered us. That certainly involves some reflection. How has God prospered me? If much, I should contribute much, and so for you. But you'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, we have a more extended description of some of these matters of the contribution. Does it there not say that we are not to give grudgingly, but rather we're to give cheerfully, and to do so in somewhat a disposition of happiness, appreciating the opportunity that, that is ours? It is for that reason, you'll notice that he says, as he purposeth in his heart. There's that word heart, and the Bible heart is the mind. 
you'll notice that even in the contribution, there is a purposing involved. A mental decision to give a specified amount in response to the way that God has prospered me, and in so doing, I have made a purposeful consideration of what is to be given as He purposeth in His heart. You'll notice that thus as we're about to participate in that contribution somewhat later in the service. Are you and I mentally engaged in it in the sense that we have made our decision, proper preparation has been made, and we are now prepared to carry it out? That one certainly demands a bit of preparation even prior to the service, doesn't it? Some discussion perhaps with a family so that an amount in proper proportion to the degree of prosperity could in fact be made. Have you and I been mentally engaged in our giving? Or rather, do we just toss in a one or a five as the plate hurriedly rushes by us, having given no thought or at least an insufficient amount to the purposing in our heart? If so, that doesn't bode well for you or for me, does it? We ought to again be mentally engaged in that attribute of worship, and that includes the element of the contribution. You'll notice perhaps one final thought. The question, where then has my mind been and where has yours been as we think about the contribution? Through these four matters so far, we've learned that in every one of them, God demands that we not only do it thoughtlessly, but rather, much different than that, put great thought into it so that worship is an honoring matter to Him. So often, perhaps through history, worship has turned into just a tradition. It's turned into just a ritual. That's the way we do it. That's the way we've always done it. And we sometimes give so little thought to it. May it not be so. But may we understand that as long as that worship, of course, consists of those things that God has approved, that it's our duty to make sure we participate in them in the way that is the proper reflection of the teaching of the Bible. Perhaps one final one, the Lord's Supper. We each have already expected that the mind is gratefully engaged in that one as well. The gospel accounts give us a marvelous message about the institution of the Lord's Supper. On that night prior to our Lord's crucifixion, and we find, for instance, in Luke's rendition, in Luke 22, beginning in verse 19, that on that occasion Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, gave to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. He did notice, didn't he? It's given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And immediately a requirement to do so in such a way that we clearly, powerfully, and marvelously remember the circumstances surrounding that gift of his body. And we appreciate it. But then he went on in the next verse and said, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. As Paul reflected upon that to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 25, it was to them that Paul addressed some very stern points. The Corinthians were mispartaking of the Lord's Supper. They were turning it into a festival meal. They were turning it into a time when some had and some didn't. Some were hungry and some wasn't. They were turning it into much different than the God-honoring Lord's Supper it was intending to be. It was in response to that that Paul had these words to say, 
I'd simply like to read several verses from 1 Corinthians 11 and notice how often the mind is engaged in these matters. Verses 24 and 25 I noted just a moment ago. Let me begin in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That's reading through verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11. You'll notice among that some of these comments are in order. Paul told them that this is a time of remembrance. This is a memorial. Our minds should be rushing back to the scene of the cross, the events that surrounded it, and in so doing, it should be our desire to discern the Lord's body. That word discern means to make a proper appreciation of, to make a proper and rightful understanding of. When the Lord's Supper is thus passed a bit later in the service, when the bread is being taken, are we remembering or are we thinking about something else? The question is for you and me personally, but Paul is quick to say that if we eat and drink unworthily, that is to say, if we do not discern the Lord's body, he says, we eat and drink damnation to our soul. It is a frightening thing to mispartake, to not let the mind be engaged, to do this in a way that is different than the way the inspired apostle revealed it. Worship is a mental matter, isn't it? It certainly involves acts, but those acts are prompted by a desire and a love to carry them out in the way with full mental engagement and involvement of what God has revealed. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that same question has now been asked one final time. Where is your mind as it comes to the Lord's Supper? Are we remembering? Are we thinking back to the scene of the blood, the body of Christ and what that has made available to you and to me? Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. It is with that in mind that we come to the closing thought of our lesson today. Worship certainly consists of acts of reverence directed to God, and they are to be done in both spirit and in truth. As we've studied those five and noticed the emphasis on the mental engagement in them, I trust we've each been reminded of the seriousness of the moment and the preparation that should be ours as we come to this building ready to worship, ready to be engaged both mentally and physically in the way God has commanded so that our worship can truly be a sweet-smelling matter to the God of heaven. As we each examine ourselves, might we ask, where do you and I stand at this moment? Are you convinced and happily satisfied that your name is in the Lamb's book of life and that truly things are well with your soul? If so, continue on that life of faithfulness. For in fact, that, Revelation 2.10, will lead to the crown of life. But if things are amiss in your life, matters of a public nature, others are aware, and your failings are such that you need the prayers of brethren, why not, in fact, come before us today and let us pray on your behalf? The gospel plan of salvation is that if you are a wayward member, come back to your first love. 
Make that proper confession, repentance of those things, and let us pray with you and for you. If you have never become a Christian, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. This hymn of encouragement has been selected, and if we could be of help to you today in becoming a faithful member of the body, why not let us do that while together we stand and while we sing?